today we're celebrating this festival. It's 100 years exactly since the Great War. That's the First World War. It was a big war, but many, many countries were involved. Millions of people lost their lives in that war. And I'm just going to ask you a question, which is, what do you think you need to be like to be a soldier? What do you think you need to be like? You need to be big, cool, you need to be brave, and put it as well. You need to be like a soldier. Fast, brave, maybe strong. Go on. Tough, yeah? I've got a few of them there. Brave, strong, uh, professional, well-trained. It's a good fighting. But here's something uh, that really happened in that great war. But it happened at the beginning of the war. At the beginning of the war, which was 1914, just over 100 years ago, it was Christmas Eve, it was the first Christmas, and a famous event happened, which I'll tell you about. The Germans decided, hey, we want to celebrate Christmas. It's Christmas tomorrow. Why can't we have Christmas? So the, German, uh, the Germans delivered Christmas trees on trucks up and down the trenches, as you see there. And the Germans were on one side of this area, and on the other side were the British. British armies facing each other. In between was no man's land. No man's land means nobody has won that land. And if you go walking into no man's land, you will probably get shot by one side or the other. But the Germans put up their Christmas trees, and then the guns fell silent. It was Christmas Eve. People started lighting candles. Even in those trenches, people started lighting candles and lanterns. And then, suddenly, in no man's land, there was a shout. It was a German soldier who said, Tomorrow is Christmas! He was shouting to the English soldiers, If you don't fight, we won't fight. Tomorrow is Christmas, if you don't fight, we, we won't fight. And then you can hear singing across no man's land. Here's the story told in a famous Sainsbury there from four years ago. Let's watch this. Jenkins. Oakley. Night. Nein, Otto! 
My name is Jim. My name is Otto. Pleased to meet you, Otto. Freut mich. Rose, she's called. Um, it's schön. Um, it's schön. Great 
great disastrous consequences. We pray, Lord, for peacemakers. We pray, Lord, that all of us, Lord, would seek the peace, Lord, that you seek for us in our hearts. In Jesus' name. So, we, as we approach this time of remembering, the question is, what are we remembering? What are we actually remembering? Many of us uh, didn't fight in the war, never known fighting in the war, don't know anybody directly who fought in the war or who died in, in the war. The question is, what, what do we actually remember? I think three things which you can perhaps think about in this time of reflection. The first one is the obvious one. Let's remember all those who have given their lives. Often, not willingly, not they didn't necessarily want to go, but those who died in wars in the past, in the First and Second World Wars, and in recent conflicts, let's remember them, and those who grieve and mourn for them. Secondly, let's remember those who keep us safe today. Those who keep us safe in armies, but also even in the police or the fire service who sometimes give their lives for us. Let's remember those who actually work with risk day to day. And thirdly, I think the third thing to remember, let's just remember not to go to war. Sounds obvious, but we need to remember not to go to war. I'm going to put some verses up from Lamentations, a book of Lamentations, but some scenes uh, from some cities that have been affected by the war. They shall not, they shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them. We will remember them.
continue uh, our remembrance service with another uh, account. I'm sure you will all have uh, heard of uh, Dunkirk and what happened at Dunkirk in 1940. Um, but an event occurred on the 17th of June 1940 at sea where Britain lost more lives at sea than any other event in history, any other seafaring event in history. In fact, more lives were lost, more British lives were lost on that day at sea than the Titanic and the Lusitana put together. So you'll know just down uh, Dunkirk that uh, essentially the English and the British forces were trapped in the northern, northwestern corner of France with their backs to the sea and facing an advancing German army. And there was nowhere to go, no planes, no boats. And in a, an incredible, audacious act of daring, the British government said, anybody who's got a boat needs to go to Dunkirk to help our boys. Anybody who has a vessel that can sail. And so many vessels, large and small, made the journey. Some of them didn't make it there, never mind back. But many of them did make it, which meant that Britain still had an army from 1940 to 1945, which was, was significant in the outcome of that, of, that, of that war. One or two weeks later, actually the evacuations continued after that day. It didn't just end on that day. And two weeks after that day, on the 17th of June, uh, this cruise liner, the uh, Lancastria set sail to evacuate thousands of men still along uh, in Dunkirk or ports next to Dunkirk. And it was called the Lancastria. It was a cruise liner, so we had no guns, no defences whatsoever. And it got to Dunkirk, loaded up with, we don't know, but it may have been around 6,000 men, some say as many as 9,000, was meant to carry 3,000. So many more men than it was meant to carry. It was packed, packed to the, to the brim. Unfortunately, it was a sitting duck onto its huge size. It's a huge cruise liner. It was spotted very quickly by a German Luftwaffe, and three Messerschmitts attacked it one after another. Four, four bombs landed on, uh, landed on deck, one right on the, on the smoke funnel, and it keeled over and started to sink very, very quickly. It was chaos on board. Men were jumping into the sea with and without lifebelts, looking for anything that would get them off. There was smoke, there was oil on fire, there was oil on the sea on fire, which made the sea set fire. There were men trapped as well on board, and particularly in the forward hold, it was, it's, it's believed there was around 200 men who had no way of getting out because of the angle of the ship there's no way they could reach the trap pool to get out. It was chaos, there was smoke, there was blood, there was the cries of men, there was oil, there was fire, there was pandemonium. But then, coming through this living nightmare, came a young army Catholic chaplain, who came all to the hold, looked inside, saw what was going on, and quietly lowers himself into the hold knowing that he couldn't escape. What was the point? There's an account of another chaplain on board who uh, gave his life jacket away to a soldier who said he couldn't swim. He didn't make it either. What was the point? Yes, what's the point? That chap lowered himself into the hole. He didn't save anyone. He didn't know them. He couldn't have liked them. And yet somehow he loved them. 
somehow we look. There was no escape, there was no hope, but there was blood. We'll come back to this. Um, as we move forward, some people say, what's the point of remembering? But hopefully, today we've seen there are points in remembering, even if it's simply remembering the mistakes, remembering not to go to war. Um, but there is still, uh, we're blessed to have amongst the living memory of what it was like, actually what it was like to live through. Now actually, uh, Pam was meant to be joined by Jean and Jean Higgins this morning. Jean, unfortunately, was taken ill, she had a fall, a couple of other things. She's going to be okay, but she's in hospital, if you could remember her in your prayers. So I'm going to try and, uh, just with the notes of my conversation with Jean, recount her experience. But we'll start with you, Pat. Um, so, um, so, Pam, uh, first of all, uh, your father, I believe, was involved in the First World War, is that correct? Uh, that's right. Um, my father, um, Bill Miller, and his friend, another Bill, um, were apprentice engineers and at the age of 16 they voluntarily um, put themselves forward to join as it, well, it was called later in, about the end of the war um, it, it was the um, Royal Air Force but they changed the name uh, well, they, they had a different name at the beginning and they took them both without, without um, checking their ages, which, which went on a lot apparently in the First World War, if you looked up enough, uh, they decided that you were strong enough, and what you talked about, with the need to be tough. Apparently they did. And both of them survived the war, which was a miracle. And looking at the photograph up there, um, when I first saw this, because I, 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 I knew very little about it, it was my elder sister, Cynthia, who now, uh, well she's died sadly, living in Australia and having contact with her eldest son, Philip, um, he, he filled me in in all sorts of different things I didn't know. And my idea of an aeroplane was certainly not like that, because I don't remember what it looked like. Um, my father became an observer um, in, in the First World War. And, and when I look at the fragility of that, that was incredible. Um, yes, and the wonderful thing at the end of the war, both um, his friend and my father went with a demand. And my father managed to, um, in, I don't know, I think he stayed longer, uh, became a second lieutenant, um, which I thought was absolutely wonderful looking back. That's a lot to ask of a 16 year old. A tremendous lot. Um, they had to be tough, but they were lots. They were so desperate in the middle of the war. It was about the middle of the war when he joined. They were so desperate for people to go because the, the, the casualties were huge that they didn't take um, people who were willingly um, underage, and they didn't in, in, investigate that. But you, your own memories are from the Second World War, of course. Yes. As a nine-year-old, you were in the London Blitz with your father. Tell us a little about that. Where were you, and what? How was, you, you talked about a, a tube station as well. Yes. Well, I actually, I was about um, 
when I was evacuated, I must have been about seven at the time, and I was evacuated to the Lake District, um, and I can't remember how long I stayed, but I know that my mother came to visit me. Obviously didn't like the accommodation that I was in, and took me to Blackpool, where she bought a caravan, and there I stayed for a bit. And I must say, because I have a very funny background, sadly, um, I come from a broken home, and at that time, my mother and father were separated. Um, and I can only remember my father coming for me, um, and actually taking me away from Blackpool, because I wasn't going to school, and he took me back to London, where he was working for the Ministry of Air Production um, and lived in West Kensington. And I can't remember exactly how long I stayed. I, looking back, I think I must have been toing and froing between the years of um, him doing that and the end of the war. So you were in, uh, in with just with your father? <coughs> That's right. In West Kensington? Yes. And so what would happen during an air raid? Uh, yes, that's right. Um, during an air raid, um, people had different ways of behaving. Some people believed they stay in their home, some people had air raid shelters. But in West Kensington, it was very near to the underground. And the uh, owner of the flat uh, my father was staying in had um, a designated bunk. Oh, you put the pictures up there. And I, I can't remember anybody sleeping on the underground in the, on the, where the train is ran. Well, I was horrified when I saw that. There's people on the line. I remember the people, all the people sleeping on the platform. I don't even remember how full it was up there. Just amazing. And then one particular day, you were down there with your sister Cynthia. Oh, before that, okay. yes. My, the owner of the flat had a designated bunk, and she hated it. She tried it. And so she said to my father, I could use it um, if he wanted to take me. And he was an air aid warden at the time. So he used to take me down and then uh, go away for his duties and come back in the morning. I can't remember how often I did that because of all the toing and froing going back to Manchester where the family home was still there and my grandmother was bringing me up. I can't, I can't actually remember the, the, the details of that, so can you imagine? Seven, eight, nine, going, going up. But yes, what was the question? Yes. So, well, well, one day you were down there with your sister Cynthia, you were telling oh, that's me, right. and, uh, and your sister's friend. Yes, my sister Cynthia um, was obviously older than me because she joined the Rens, which is the Women's Royal um, naval services and um, she was on leave at the time and it was incredible really but her friend that she'd made in the services actually her family home was in West Kensington it's the other side of where we were past, past the underground and one night all three of us went down my sister Cynthia her friend and myself and um, I, I, I can't. I think I must have offered the boat, but I ended up on the boat. Where ended up on the platform. And the next morning, when we heard the um, all clear sound of the siren, which always a welcome sign 
and sound because it was not interrupted. The alert siren was all it was intermittent and it was a horrible sound. So it was wonderful to be able to go back and then, you know, we're still alive and, and out into the wonderful fresh air. Well it wasn't fresh air. Is this what you're asking? Yes, your father's friends. That's right. Friends. Uh, we didn't know, I can't remember whether, well, I think my sister's friend went back to her flat and we went back to, to see my father. But when we, when we, we knew, uh, when my sister met my friend again, her house had been demolished completely and all the rest of the family and, and were, were, were killed. And when, when it was the amazing sight to come out of the underground and see all the devastation around. I can remember that very clearly because there was a funny smell around. It was just bricks and water, I suppose. And whole houses were just demolished and all that was left was, was bricks. And, and actually, there were so many gaps all around the houses that we saw before we went down. It was, it was a very... As a child, I, I, I got through that. I can't... I can't be amazed what children can cope with. It's amazing. Yes. Thank you very much, Pam. That's really helped to bring to life uh, some of the events that you know, we only see uh, in newsreel on the news. I'm just going to do a, read a couple of notes from the conversation with Jean. Um, thanks, Pam. So, Jean, actually, I was in Manchester in uh, Battlefield uh, during the war, and she distinctly remembers going into Manchester going to Piccadilly and seeing the house of Piccadilly just obliterated, just black and hardly anything left. And uh, you may have memories, I don't know, of your first driving lesson, your first date, your first exam, your first job, but Jean distinctly remembers her first bomb, and the first of many bombs, but she distinctly remembers her first bomb. She was a young teenager in a flat in Powerfield with her father, and she heard the sound of the whirring and the falling. And then she said the sound of it exploding. Her description was, it was like a thousand sheets of paper being torn in your ear. Simultaneously, a thousand sheets of paper being torn in your ear at once. And then she remembers a body falling on her, directly as her father. Fortunately, he was well, and they both survived. That was his way of protecting her. As soon as he knew there was a bomb, he just left on to, to try and protect her. Um, she also has a memory of being evacuated which is uh, what must be quite typical of Jean, as you'll find out. But, so she started off in Fallowfield in her teens, and they said you have to be evacuated. So they all got on these trains, they all got on a train, and they, they went along during the day, apparently for hours, on this train. Nobody told them where they were going, nobody told them where they would be staying, nobody gave them any information, just children, just sit on the train for the whole day, and just, just be, be thankful. So after uh, some, some considerable length of time getting on the train in Powerfield, they got off the train and then they asked where they were and said, oh, you're in Chief. The train had to go through West Kensington to Underground. <laughs> they spent the whole day going about 10 miles. So they were not impressed. So then she said she remembered uh, lots of the children that she was with started disappearing over the next few days. Uh, uh, but it wasn't very uh, insidious what they were doing. They were scrimping pennies and saving money to get the bus back home. <laughs> Probably a 20 minute ride. <laughs> Not down the bus. Um, 
she didn't uh, get the bus back home, so she was there for some months. <coughs> she said she was palmed off into a cottage with a couple who had a daughter. She was not really welcomed um, by the daughter especially, who was about her age. She had to share a bed with this girl, and she described her as a nasty girl. Um, perhaps uh, turned out to be a nasty little girl, not a nice memory. Um, but who knows, these things help to shape um, the unique character that Jean is today, uh, don't they? And uh, please do ask her about that if you want to know more. Uh, we will move on. Just got time for one last story. <clears throat> so we've had uh, an account, a story from the First World War and a story from the Second World War. This is a real account from a more recent conflict, uh, which many of us will remember. It was in the 1990s. Anybody know what country that is or where that is? Yeah, it's sort of Bosnia Croatia, isn't it? Now, before uh, 1990, it was Yugoslavia, the whole area was Yugoslavia. Today, it's uh, Serbia, Croatia, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, a number of countries, a number of smaller, newer countries. Um, but there's a story, an account, a true account, of a family who lived through that called the Malkoc family. The Malkoc family lived in the northwest. It lived in the northwest, and the village was called Jazeera, and it was by a small lake. And in the early 90s, uh, their father, the, the war was starting, but they were still getting on with life. Their father would travel. One day he came back from Austria from a business trip with two goldfish for his two boys. They had two sons. Uh, the wife was called Fahima Malkoff, he was called Smajov Malkoff, and they had two boys. The two boys loved these fish, they would feed them and uh, watched them each day. But the war was advancing, and uh, very soon, around 1992-93, uh, the Bosnian Serb army arrived at their village and started pelting the village with missiles, uh, with, with artillery. The women and children were told to leave, so Fahima left with the two boys, uh, while Smancho Malkoc stayed with the men to try and fight off the army. Uh, awful things happened during that war. Uh, some of these faces you might remember, Karadic and Maladic, who, who are now in prison for war crimes, because terrible crimes were committed uh, on more than one side. Uh, and, and it's interesting, isn't it, that Sarajevo actually was the, the, the starting point for the First World War many years earlier. Um, but uh, the father, the men were killed quite quickly. Fahima uh, crept back into the village to bury her husband uh, just after two or three days. This all happened in just two or three days. And as she buried her husband, she went back to the house and she saw the two fish and she felt sorry for them. She said, I'll put them in the lake. Maybe they'll be luckier than you. <coughs> so she put them in the lake <coughs> and went away from the village, which was too dangerous to stay. Three years later, fast forward to about 1995, and the boys and Fahima returned to their village of Jazeera. It's, it's wiped out, it's blackened, and their apartment is pretty much gone. It's all, and Fahima's, she's overcome with emotion, her eyes are misting up. And then she turns and looks in a different direction, and she sees something glowing in the distance. Says, What's that? She walks over, and the lake is golden. It's literally golden. It's actually bursting with light. Where there was two goldfish, there's actually thousands of fish 
we've been fruitful and multiplying, getting on with life. Now, um, the fish became famous, actually. The, fish of, the goldfish of Jazeera were, were then uh, sold, and the two boys made a living of, uh, from that. And they said it was their father's gift to them. So it's interesting that while there was devastation and conflict and criminality and barbarism on the surface, down in the depth, in the deep, life was multiplying, life was flourishing. And that's actually a parable of God's grace. That somehow, even when the world is falling apart, God's grace continues. God's grace continues, God's kingdom continues in ways that surprise us. Well, that's easy for me to say, isn't it? I haven't been in a war. And we, it's easy for us to say, we're in a leafy village in Cheshire. And it's not the same. What about other people who really ask this question, where is God? What is God doing about this war? Where is God in time of war? It's a theoretical question for us, but if you were uh, in that town of Syria <coughs> just this year, it's not a theoretical question, it's a very real question. Where is God? <coughs> where is God when everything is literally falling apart? What is he doing? Earlier we had some verses from the book of Lamentations. Probably not a book that we turn to very often. One reason is it's just a cry. It's a wail. It is grief from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 5 at the end. There's one point of hope in it, which some of you will know. Lamentations 3. Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never failed. They are new every morning. Great is that faith. And we write songs about it, which is great. It's the only verse, though, that anybody knows, because the rest of it is bleak, it's black, it's mourning, it's grieving, it's crying out. In fact, the original Hebrew name of that book isn't lamentation. If you look at the Hebrew Bible, it's just how. And it's the writer saying, How have you allowed this to happen, God? You said you are the one God. If you, we will be your people, you will be our God. How has this happened? We are the chosen people. We are Israel. And the Babylonians are basically, are basically taken over. Israel, Judah, and sacked Jerusalem, burnt it to the ground, destroyed the temple, wiped it out. And Israel is carried off in exile to Babylon as slaves. And the people shout, How? How have you allowed this? How has this happened? Aren't you the one God? Aren't you our God? How have you let this happen? Lamentations gets it. It's a cry from start to finish. In the midst of war, a terrible war. How did God allow this to happen? And where is God in these times? Is a question that's been asked for thousands of years. And we're not, there is no easy answer. There is no straightforward answer. But there are some clues. So without hopefully being glib about it, where is God in time of war? I think the first thing we can say from our first story today is that for ages and generations people have gone to us saying, well, God's on our side. God is always on our side because we worship God. Actually, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says he's on the side of the victim, the orphan, the widow, the refugee, the uh, alien in the land. He's on the side of the victim. He's not on my side or yours. Often, we end up, the people we end up hating and fighting 
as we saw in that first story, are frighteningly like us. Frighteningly descendants of us in many ways. And there are very few just wars. Now there have been just wars. History judges it to be so. So the rise of um, the Nazi ideology in the 1930s, history judges that to have been evil. I think we would all agree with that. And, and so you can have a just war. But mostly, there aren't just wars. There are just wars. There aren't just wars, there are only wars where everybody claims that God's on their side. And actually the scripture says, I'm on the side of the orphan, I'm on the side of that guy on his bike in Syria that you saw that earlier picture. So God isn't on a side. Then let's answer this question, which is the same question as, where is God? Become a different way. Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God do something about war? Why doesn't he stop it? Because he's all powerful. He could do. But we have to remember that we live in a world that's not as it should be. We live in a damaged world, a disfigured world. We live in a world which is in trauma. The original world that God created in Genesis is a stunning world, stunning in its beauty, perfect in its order. Everything is as it should be. And the world we read about in Revelation, the end world, is the same. It's a restored creation, a restored order, restored perfection. And we live in between the times. We live in between these times. In a world which is in trauma, and things are not as they are, as they should be. But God is still present. God can be present in the act of that chaplain on that ship. That was a heroic act. We don't have to be heroes. God is present when we take a step. When we say this isn't right, that these are victims, when we pray for the folks in Syria, when we give to dear from the doing work in Yemen, God is present in other ways. <coughs> war brings out that character in people as well. God doesn't make wars happen, but war can bring out courage and valour and sacrifice and love. And God can use that. And then in our last story, we just have a, a glimpse there, I, I hope, that actually God's grace continues. It's a relentless grace that continues. Whatever is going on in the world, God's kingdom continues. And God will achieve his ultimate ends. Whatever happens, whatever, whatever traumas are going on in the world today. He achieves his ends sometimes in ways we least expect. That was a picture of that in that last story. So, uh, why doesn't God do something about war? I would actually say God is always doing something about war. God is always doing something about war. Nobody can look at the cross, for example, and say God doesn't understand conflict. Nobody can look at the cross and say God doesn't understand what it's like to be abandoned, to be dejected, to be forlorn, to be astonishing pain. Nobody can say that. See, in Lamentations, <coughs> Israel is in this period where they, they had a wonderful kingdom, everything was right, at the peak of their history under David, but now about 600 BC, the Babylon, God allows the Babylonians to come and take them all the way to exile. Jerusalem, Jerusalem is ransacked, finished. And they ask the question now. But God says to them, and we read about it in 2nd Isaiah, the middle of Isaiah, and we see it fulfilled in Ezra and Nehemiah, that God had that for them. God promised them that this is not as it should be. <clears throat> you are not alone, says God. I will make this right. Didn't feel like it at the time. If you're in Babylon, in that case, as a threat, didn't feel like God was making it right. Because you were in between the times. 
God says, God promised that this was not as it should be, that they were not alone, that it would end. Similarly today, this present world is not as it should be. But we are not left to face it alone. God will not leave us alone. Is that not a summary of our gospel <coughs> as Christians? That this world is not as it should be. But, but God says, I will not leave you to face it alone. I refuse to leave you. Heavenly Father, as we think about these things, Lord, great issues across the world, and as we look at conflicts which we feel are helpless about, help us to remember, first, there's always something we can do. Help us to be you, Lord, to be your hands, your feet, your eyes in this world. Thank you too, Lord, that we are not alone, that we, you're the one we trust, you're the one we know, you're the one, Lord, who gives us this hope in Christ. going to read some verses from Micah chapter 4. This is one of those great passages in the Old Testament where the prophets look forward to that time when God will do that new thing, that thing that we see totally fulfilled in Revelation. This is Micah 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the height of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The Lord will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and settle disputes from strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take the sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Amazing promises. We're going to uh, stand and spend some time just in, in some worship as we close. And just to say this first song, I was trying to find a song that was actually written right at the end of the First World War. Um, we just have the words of this first song. Hopefully most of you will know this. We'll just sing the chorus of it. This was written just after the Treaty of Versailles. And I think the words of it, turn your eyes upon Jesus, are just as important today. And all that our world goes through, say, actually as Christians, if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and his ways we will follow in his path. So if you want to sit while we sing this or if you want to stand, whatever is easiest for you, we'll then continue in prayer.